Hi, welcome to an unprogrammed life with Marty Ocean Eagle. I am Ocean Eagle. Well, it's not what I am, but um, Ocean Eagle is my spirit name that I that I go by. So you're welcome to you know people know me as Marty. People know me as Marty Ocean Eagle. People know me as Ocean Eagle. People know me as O E or people know me as Mo Marty Ocean Eagle. Um, <laughs> It's whatever you feel comfortable with. If you address me later on at any point for some reason in, a, in, a, in an email or uh, any type of interaction that we do. So what is an unprogrammed life? Ah, an unprogrammed life to me, it came to me because I realized as I have did so much work on my inner childhood wounding, um, everything in life that was guiding my thoughts, guiding my subconscious and Everything in my life, a subconscious thought that would guide my actions in relationships, that would guide my actions around work, that would guide my actions around how I related to friends and my children. And, and, and there was doing things that I didn't like, the things that never felt right within me. And once I started doing all the work that I've done on the inner wounds and the life, and I'll go into my life a little bit more in a little bit so I can, we can relate to one another. But once I realized that I started making deals and started making concessions and started absorbing other people's ideas and other people's, you know, the generational wounding that was being passed down, I began to make deals very, at a very young age. And the programming begins right after we're babies right? Um, all of a sudden, we have that beautiful, bright light in our chest. And oh God, we, we control the world. We have everybody on our pinky and we just move our pinky and everybody jumps. And then all of a sudden, we start, you know, doing things that the parents don't like or people that are around us. And then they tell us what? They tell us no. And they start telling us no. And we start getting programmed. I ask people all the time these days, I said, do you have any original thoughts? And then after they look at me, so I think everything I think, I'm like, no. Do you have any thoughts where you like can think of that you went out into, let's say, nature and you went out and laid against a tree and a thought came in and all of a sudden you took that thought and you went and applied it into your life and turned it into wisdom for you. Authentic, true wisdom that's all yours. Very few people have have that in their lives. Most people are programmed. We're programmed by our parents. We're programmed by our friends, by our siblings. We're programmed by our schools. We're programmed by society. We're programmed by media, social media, anything on the internet these days. We're, we're all programmed. What do, what do parents love to do with little children to keep them occupied? They babysit them with what? Television, with videos. They let them watch these shows that start programming the kids. And then all of a sudden, you go down in life, you go through life and you realize that you're really not even making the choices yourself. You realize that if you really look at some of the things that you say and some of the things that you think and try to drill back into where they came from, you can understand that this came from some type of a program, some type of a conditioning, let's call it, from my dad, my mom, their parents and their parents and their parents. And so we're going to dive into the family of origin. Um, we have to go there. Uh, that's the biggest place where we get our programming initially. And uh, for, for me, it's like I, I looked at all the traumas. I had a very uh, traumatic childhood, a lot of trauma, a lot of abuse, a lot of abandonment, a lot of neglect. 
So all that was programming. All that was me making deals and saying at age seven years old, I'm never getting married. And no, no seven-year-old should be thinking that way. And all the other stuff that happened through my childhood, my teenage years, and then all the personal wounding that I did to myself, all the other choices that, that I made. And, and throughout the course of these uh, episodes and podcasts, you know, we'll go into everything. And, uh, and, and I want to start by qualifying, basically. Why do I feel like I have anything to say to you? Why do I feel like I've got anything that will make a difference in this world? Well, I don't know. All I have is my experience. I have my experience, my strength, and my hope. And I hope to share that with you so that we can build this level of trust. And um, and you got and whoever's watching this or, or feels like they are getting anything out of it, that we start to build a bond and then we start to under, understand that it's uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been sober 20 years, and I'll go into that. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, the thing that, that keeps people coming is when somebody tells their story. And all of a sudden, you can relate to these people. And all of a sudden, you don't feel alone anymore. Oh, that person drank like I did, or oh, that person felt like I did, or oh, that person you know acted like I did. And then all of a sudden, you start not feeling alone. You can kind of start becoming a part of instead of separated. And this is a world right now just... All, all people want to do is separate. That's all. We're all earthlings. We are all here on earth. We're all earthlings. And everybody wants separation. I'm Russian. I'm Chinese. I'm Hispanic. I'm Spanish. I'm French. I'm American. I'm Peruvian. I'm, I'm Brazilian. We all want to put a label on us and call them what? My people. Those are my people. We're all each other's people. We're all here on earth, spinning around on this blue ball in the middle of the cosmos, trying to figure this thing out. And the less we can separate one another and get back to, oh man, get back to that feeling of community where there's no oceans separating us. There's no borders separating us. And we understand that we're all one. We're all the same. And I'll go into that later on too. But what I really want to talk about right now is what happened with me. Uh, what what got me to this point? I'm 51 years old. I've got four children, 14, 16, 22, and 24. Um, the older boys are my stepsons, but I raised them for 14 years, and they're my children's half brothers. Um, I'm still close with them. But I've had three failed marriages. I've been a member of the Mormon Church for eight years in there. <laughs> I know. Don't judge. Um, you know, uh, my version of, of a cult, but that's okay. It's like, it's all good. Um, I don't judge anybody for what they do or what they believe in. It's, it's everybody to their own. Um, this is 7.5 billion people on the planet and everybody gets to have their own perception. Everybody gets to have their, I don't have a pen in my hand that writes your story. You have the pen in your hand that writes your story. And if I start writing on your paper, I'm wrong. That's, that's my fault. It's none of my business what you put down when you're writing your story, when you're living your life. So about me. So I was, uh, at a very young age, the traumas and the abuse uh, started, started happening with me. Um, my dad, my mother were both alcoholics. My father was abusive uh, emotionally. Uh, he ruled by fear and strength. He was from, he was from West Texas. And he was a, he was a bully. And, and he was a bad drunk. He was a bad alcoholic. He was a horrible gambler. And I, yeah, I remember some good times at the beginning, but not not very much. Uh, yeah, 
and I've done all the work around all this stuff. I've, I've really, and not that it can't come back and be triggered. I understand that now. Because at one point I thought I was healed. <laughs> Silly me. Um, we're never healed. We always got work to do. There's always stuff that's going to come back up, even no matter how much work you've done. But what happens for me now is like I can get through a trigger really quick, very fast. It doesn't uh, own me. It doesn't, uh, I pull my energy back and my power back right away. I understand that I have a choice to give it energy or not. And I, I take the energy back. I don't not, My story doesn't have uh, dominion over me. It's not my master anymore. And it used to be. But my father was, like I said, very, um, hmm, he's full of anger, full of rage. I remember, um, and I, this is my major, you know, I remember one time when I was, a, I was five or six years old and uh, he came home and got in this horrible fight in the middle of the day, middle of the afternoon with my mom. And uh, I remember being out in the front yard and I heard the screams and the you know yells inside the house and just, you know, and, and, and I remember um, the front door coming open and I remember my dad having just handfuls of my mom's hair dragging her and she's on the ground trying to scoot herself along to keep up with him. And he's dragging her in the middle of our neighborhood, you know, embarrassed, shame, you know, hits you, you know, all that stuff. And what really happens is soul loss. A six-year-old boy can't handle uh, a, a scene like that. So part of your soul, for me, my, my perception is that part of my soul had to detach and go away. And that's when I started losing my essence and my childlike qualities and the uh, the pureness that I was born with. And then the programming starts kicking in and I start making agreements with life and what I'm going to do and not going to do and the choices that I made. And it's all starting to be made on a subconscious level now at a very young age. I don't remember how that scene ended. I remember dad dragged her across the front yard and tried to shove her in the car and he was yelling at her. I, I don't remember what the whole thing was about. But... I remember they were separated after that, and my brother was very abusive to me at a very young age. He had he was he was on Ritalin at a very young age. He was ADHD, um, whatever else he had going on. A lot of stuff that that, that my brother had going on, and uh, he was abusive to all the cousins too. It wasn't just me. Um, <laughs> he was abusive to everybody, but it, it wasn't his fault. You know, I, I understand now. But it took me. A, I'll go into my brother later on. But when my dad. Um, my mom and my dad, I guess they were separated. I was seven. My brother was eight. You know, not that my story's, you know, greater than or less than anybody else. This is my story. This is what happened for me. I remember my dad called on a Saturday morning and my dad wanted to come over and see my mom. He wanted to say, talk to her, he said. So he came over. My mom agreed to let him come over. And he came over and, and he told my brother and I to go stay in the other room or go play or something. He was going to talk to mom in the bedroom. The next thing I know is... I hear these horrific, horrible screams that you never want to hear from a parent, much less your mother. And he hadn't locked the door. And my brother and I go in to see what the hell is going on. I, you know, I don't remember a lot of things about that age. And a lot of, so much is blocked, you know, because of the traumas. But I can tell you the color of the carpet in the house. I could tell you the smell in that house that day. I could tell you that my mother's nightgown was green and it was laying on the ground ripped into two pieces. And then my dad was naked on top of her uh, on the bed, and he was brutally uh, beating her and raping her viciously in front of us. And my mom, I remember her looking at us and trying to protect us and screaming at us to, boys, just go out of the room. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And I remember my dad uh, looking at us with this rage in his eye. I remember him bawling his fist up. I remember him looking at my mom, telling her to shut the F up, right? And just 
crushing her across the jaw. And I, heard, I remember I can hear the crack still when he broke her jaw. You know, that's something you just don't ever, a seven-year-old boy can't handle, you know. But my dad got off of her and came yelling at us and screaming. He's naked, you know, he's got an erection, you know, and he's yelling at us and pushing us out of the room and, you know, pushes us out and he locks the door. And then he goes back to raping her more. I'm left banging on the outside of the door, you know, I'm just banging on it. Please, dad, stop. Please, dad, stop. And I think my brother had gone maybe next door to call the police or have the neighbors call the police. I'm not sure. But um, the next thing I remember is all four of us standing in the kitchen. And I remember us standing there. And I remember the crazy look in my father's eye. And him just telling us that we just don't understand. That we just don't understand. And and uh, he's right. I never understood. I remember looking at my mom and her jaw, you know, black and blue where he had, and he broke it. I remember her just hand just shaking, trying to drink a cup of coffee. And she couldn't, she couldn't drink a cup of coffee. I remember the cops came and that was it. They took him away. I, I don't think she didn't press charges. I don't, I don't know. I don't know the details. Because there was no therapy around this. There was no counseling around this. There was no going to see somebody around this to, to heal this, you know, to work on it. And my mom became a, a single parent. Um, my dad was out of my life for many years. I didn't hear from him or see him. We were in the Bay Area in California at the time. And my mom moved us over to Foster City. And uh, my brother and I became latchkey kids at, you know, seven, eight years old, eight or nine years old. We were 16 months apart. And that's then we were latchkey kids. and. And so we, uh, again, the programming, though, that kicks in and starts as you start your survival mode, your survival skills, and you start building your ego mask, right? At a very young age, you start building your, your mask. That's I call it your mask. And you start putting on this, you know, this, this idea of what you sh- how you should act in the world. And, and everything I did in the world was, was fear-based. I was... I was so terrified and afraid of everything because of what had happened. And, uh, you know, my dad used to, before that even happened, my dad used to, you know, very methodical about how he spanked us and beat us, you know, very methodical about taking us down to the machine shop where he worked as a machinist. And he would get out a piece of wood and he would cut the wood into the shape of a paddle. And then he would drill holes in it on the drill press in front of us. And, and then he would make us go back to the back room and my brother and I would have to sand it ourselves and then when we were done with that whole process, then he'd beat the shit out of us with it. And, uh, you know, stuff like that just was, was how, he, how he operated. And he was a very tough guy and raised that way. It's all generational stuff. It was all passed down from his brothers. He got beat up and beat the hell, the hell beat, had the hell beat out of him by his brothers. And, and his dad, I, I don't know, my, my grandfather, he died when my dad was 15. And it was a whole other massive wound for my dad. As my mom tried to raise us two little hell-raising kids, um, I was following my brother around. I was trying to impress. It was the only thing I had. I had no friends. My mom moved us over to Foster City. We had no friends. We were latchkey kids. And I was left to follow my brother around. And my brother was getting in a lot of trouble. He was doing a lot of, a lot of bad stuff. And then I started doing bad stuff to, make, to impress him. Like I remember when we were eight years old. I was eight. He was nine. I was in third grade. And my brother and another friend of his uh, stole uh, a couple of bikes. And I remember just wanting to impress them. And so I set out to go steal my own bike. And I was going to steal a better bike. And I did. I, I watched these kids go in this bank, I think it was. I don't know. But I went and stole that bike. And I was so proud to be able to ride that thing home to go show my brother and his a friend, you know, what I had done. And Man, my kids, I, I don't know if my kids knew how to tie his shoes at eight years old, but, <laughs> you 
But we took these bikes apart with, uh, you know, with wrenches and stuff and put them and swapped the parts on them and stuff to, so they wouldn't be identifiable. I don't know why we thought to do that, but we ended up getting caught. And lo and behold, all three people that had the bike stolen had all filed complaints, you know, had, had all filed, uh, filed with the police department. So the police department come, the police officers come, put us all in a circle, and my brother and I and the other kid have to sit there in front of these people that own these bikes, our parents and the police, take the bikes apart and put them back together. I was eight, and I got fingerprinted um, like a good little thief <laughs> should be. To teach us a lesson. And my mom at that point decided to get us out of California. And she grew up in a small town called Roscoe, Texas, in West Texas. She moved us in with my grandparents, who uh, lived on the corner of a cotton field um, in a wood shack, I call it. It had, I think, three bedrooms, only one bathroom, I think. And it had no, no heating, no electric. Uh, I mean, it had electric, just no heating, no uh, air conditioning. And it literally was when the, when the sands or the winds would blow and the dirt, we would have to sweep the house out and get the dirt out of the, out of the house because it would come through the walls. And in the wintertime, we'd open the oven, oven door and we'd close the doors of the kitchen and all stay in the kitchen to stay warm. And that was a big culture shock for me to come from California. And we were kind of middle class, I, I think, and to go to that. And then, of course, these little California boys wearing their vans, tennis shoes, you know, showing up in West Texas where they're the Roscoe Plowboys. We didn't get along that well. And my brother was a fighter. He loved to fight, man. And uh, he was in fights all the time, always getting in trouble. And my mom, again, went to, went, started working. She was an alcoholic. Like I said, she was a heavy drinker. And uh, you can imagine after what she went through with my father, uh, how much uh, she had that she felt she needed to numb out. So, and she did. I have no, I have a great relationship with my mom today. Um, I've been sober, like I said, 20 years. My mom's been sober about the same time now. Um, and I love her to death. I'm close with her. Um, she knows I'm talking about this. I've gotten permission. So anyway, um, so as my, as we're here in Roscoe, Texas, and, and, you know, I'm just still, I'm still just a scared little boy trying to just figure things out, right? The only thing that saved me because at that point I got into sports and I was, I was gifted athletically. My brother wasn't as gifted as me and not to mention he was just always getting into other, other trouble. And I kind of went left and he went right. And um, he went farther down and he always got in more trouble than I was, that I got in. And he was always, and, and my brother was, God bless him. God rest his soul. He died at 22 in a, in a car accident, drunk driving car accident. Both of us have had many car accidents. Um, growing up, um, my mom uh, ended up marrying uh, my stepdad, Earl. And Earl owned a, owned a bar called Uncle Funky's in Sweetwater, Texas, uh, just down the road from Roscoe. Um, but before that, mom had moved us to San Angelo, Newtown. Moving was a, was a huge, I went to 11 schools in 12 years. Uh, my mom moved away, moved, moved me all the time. And uh, she got in with my stepdad and they started moving a lot. They spent their nights at the bar. They would leave. Us. I was alone a lot again. Uh, that, was a, that was the theme. You know, I was left to raise myself and make my own food very often. And, and my brother was just kept getting in trouble and more and more and more trouble. And, you know, I, I could sit here and tell you the whole story. But, you know, there was my mom and stepdad moved and left me twice, um, once in the end of sixth grade. I had about a month and a half of sixth grade left and 
they moved 110 miles away and left me with a friend of mine and his mom because they were off chasing some pipe dream, which they tended to do. So I, I, I finished sixth grade without, without my mom there and moved away after sixth grade to go join them. And then they only lasted there six months. They moved us back and moving all the dang time, chasing dreams of theirs. And as I, as I look back now, it turned me into kind of a chameleon. I was, I was able to fit in quickly because I had to if I wanted to be, make friends, right? Because I moved so much. And then later on, we got in back to Sweetwater, Texas. And I, I had just taken the Sweetwater. Well, I was a really gifted uh, a quarterback. I had a really strong arm. And uh, that's not an ego thing. It was just what I came with. But I took the junior varsity team to a 10-0 season. I got called up to varsity to go to the playoffs. And this was a big 4A school in Texas, number one probably 4A school at that time in Texas. And and I was in line to be the quarterback the next few years coming up. And um, I got called up to, to varsity, got taken to the playoffs with them. And my mom and my stepdad moved. They moved uh, They moved 100 miles away to San Angelo. Got rid of the house we were in. And I, I told them I didn't want to go. And I stayed with my grandparents who were in a little shack, a little two-bedroom, one-bathroom shack uh, house there. And, and I stayed with them. And I had a little bed that was shut off by a curtain and I didn't want to go. I wanted, I loved playing football at Sweetwater. I wanted to stay there. But as the playoffs went, I had a lot of anger and a lot of rage, as you could imagine, going through all I went through. And I started drinking and then, oh, 14, 15 years old. I'm, I'm drinking. I'm full on drinking all the time. I'm straight up blackout drinker, started drinking with my friends in Sweetwater. Uh, we do keg parties and, uh, it, and the drinking was on. It was Anything I could do to numb out and not feel is what I, what, I, what I wanted to do. I remember that they weren't, we would get big leads in the playoffs uh, and they weren't putting me in the game. And that was okay, but then my mom and my stepdad were going to come to a game. And I remember going to the quarterback coach and telling him how important, you know, God, I've, if we get a big lead, you have to put me in. My mom and my stepdad are going to be here, you know. And nobody ever went to my baseball games and my football games. And so anyway, we... um. We got a big lead, and uh, and I'll be, they didn't put me in. And I had so much anger and so much rage that my default choice was to run. I went to the parking lot and told my mom and stepdad, F these guys. I'm leaving. I'm coming to San Angelo with you guys. And, you know, that team ended up going to the Cotton Bowl and playing for the state championship. And the week before they went to the state championship, both quarterbacks went down. I would have been the quarterback. Um, I called the coach. There was no way to come back. I'd already transferred schools. So another abandonment, another thing that, you know, that I used as a as an excuse for my poor decisions later in life, you know, poor me's victims, you know. I remember when, I've only got a little bit here. I want to go over, I remember when my, um, when my dad came back into my life. I was living in Texas. My mom, don't know why, decided that it was okay to put me and my brother on a plane to go see him for two weeks in the summer. I hadn't heard from him or seen him since he had beaten, raped my mother in front of me. And I think I was 10 or 11 years old. I don't remember going to the airport. I don't remember getting on that plane. I don't remember getting off the plane. I don't remember what my dad looked like when I got off the plane. I can't imagine how horrified I was knowing that I was going to see that man with no supervision. And it was a train wreck when I got there. I remember my dad was sleeping on a mattress in an apartment with some other guy. And he wasn't taking, he didn't take any time off work. And my brother and I were just hanging out by ourselves during the day. And then at night, you know, he was such an angry man. At night, he would put us in his van and he would drive us to the parking lot of the uh, 
card rooms that he would love to gamble in and, 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 uh, and, and play cards all night. And he would threaten us and he said, stay in the van, don't leave. And he would lock us in the van all night. And he'd come out at, you know, four, five, six in the morning, stumbling drunk, lost all of his money, angry, yelling it out, taking it out on us, you know, driving us home, drunk, scared, you know, just like it was just a mess. And our, uh, my visits with him would, would, go, would, would always be like that. It would, they were always terrible. Um, I, don't, I, I never wanted to go. I never wanted to be with him. But I remember when my brother started getting in some really bad trouble. My brother was incarcerated a lot in his uh, teenage years and early, early adult uh, years. <clears throat> and, uh, but I remember um, he was in trouble out in California. And uh, my dad and my mom and my stepdad decided to bail him out. And I was in, I was doing great in Sweetwater, Texas. I loved it. I was 15 years old. I loved it. And, uh, but they decided to send Matt back to Texas where I was living. And I hated that. I hated it so much that I decided to do a geographic. And I told my dad I wanted to come live with him if Matt was coming to be in Sweetwater. So I did. I went to Livermore, California. My dad had an apartment there with my stepmother. And that was a whole nother train wreck of a relationship, 30 year nightmare. Um, she was bipolar. They were both drunks. They were both gamblers, terrible gamblers. And they had horrible stuff that happened. Just, I could tell you story after story that would just, you just shake your head at. And, and anyway, um, so I went out there and I lived out there and I, I started drinking a lot. And it was my first, that was first of my freshman year actually in high school. So I went to high, first half of high school at Livermore High School. And I remember my dad was going down, he had a little boat down at the Delta and him and my stepmother would go to, on the weekends, we'd go to the Delta and go to his boat. And he bought me a little 14 foot little Ranger boat and they would go to the bar at the Marina and they would drink all night and get drunk. I would take the little boat out by myself and I would go out in the Delta at night in the pitch black and I would go tie into these toolies. I would stay there and I would sleep there at night. Uh, by myself, just scared, you know, um, but better than going back and dealing with what I was, what was waiting for me there. And that was, uh, I remember when I went back home to visit my, I played football then, but I don't remember anything. I don't remember anything about that high school. I don't remember one class I went to. Um, I just remember drinking a lot. I remember going back to Texas to visit my mom at Christmas. And I remember we got in the car to go to the airport to go back to my dad. And I remember just sobbing. It was breaking down. I said, please don't send me back there. Please, please don't send me back there. And they turned the car around and we didn't. And that's how I ended up staying back in Sweetwater. And my dad had to pack my stuff up. And so, you know, my childhood was a, was a mess. And then what I started doing as high school went on was I started drinking a lot. I started drinking a ton. I was a, everybody, my, my blind Spanish teacher, <laughs> At my high school, knew me as Party Marty. That was my nickname. Um, I was president of a drinking fraternity in high school. Yep, we had drinking fraternities in high school in West Texas. Just by the grace of God, I went to school on a baseball scholarship. I was very gifted. Like I said, that was, uh, being athletically gifted was the only thing that kept me out of trouble. You know, going on, you know, I could tell you story after story, but by the time I was 25 years old, I had had countless failed relationships. I had three DUIs, drunk drivings. I had totaled four cars. I had thrown my head through a windshield of one of, in one of, the, one of those accidents. I, I was just a blackout drinker. I ran my car into someone's, you know, down a fence line and went into someone's dining room and knocked part of their house off. 
I had a car in a dead spin at 70 miles an hour that's trunk wrapped around a light pole. I slammed into the back of a park suburban while I was drunk one night and threw my head through the windshield of the car. I've been through it. I've been through a lot. And um, all that led to all this programming. Um, I finally got sober at age 30. Uh, and that was uh, over 20 years ago. But that's, that's a quick qualification. I could, I could go on and on, but uh, we're about at the 30 minutes here. So I'm going to kind of sign this thing off on this one. I didn't really mean to make it a big thing about, but I need, I need to make sure that you guys understand, whoever's watching this, that I come from deep wounding. I come from deep traumas, deep abuse, deep abandonment, deep neglect, and then self-inflicted stuff that, that happened. And uh, I'll fill you in. I'll fill in a little more as I, as I go on these podcasts and videos of exactly, you know, the, as I, I've, I've got a book coming out right now. I've got over 240 pages done. And that's going to be interesting to see when that comes out because it's, I've, been, I've had a spiritual awakening that happened here about mm, a little less than 10 months ago. And we'll go into that as well. But I'm really going to stay on to the programming thing. And when I, when we have the next episode, we'll get into the basics of programming and how they guide us and how they rule our subconscious and how our old story becomes our master and we become a slave to it. Our old story becomes the feral cat at our back door. And if we keep feeding that feral cat, it keeps showing up. And, you know, part of the book that I'm writing, it's got parts in it, like what's my part? because yours is none of my business. And, and that's about taking ownership. That's about, no, I didn't have responsibility for what happened in my childhood, but as an adult, I'm now responsible for the energy, my energy, my power that I choose to give that story. And until I can get all that energy back within me, it's still scattered in the old story. It's still scattered in my past. So anyway, that's episode one of an unprogrammed life with ocean Eagle. And I hope you come back and, We'll get into programming uh, on the second episode and uh, we'll go from there. All right. With all the love in my heart, I have so much love and compassion for this world, this planet. I know we're all one. I know the planet's all one with us. And that's for me. That's my perception. So I say namaste and aho. Bye-bye.